Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest today is Shang Ping Xie. Shang Ping describes his research as being about atmosphere-ocean interaction. That might sound like one subject, but in Shang Ping's case, it covers an amazingly broad range of research topics to which he's contributed over several decades. Shang Ping first became widely known in the field in the 1990s for his work on the wind evaporation sea surface temperature feedback, which describes a set of coupled processes in the atmosphere and ocean that act to keep the Pacific Tropical Rain Belt, or Intertropical Convergence Zone, as we call it, north of the equator throughout the year, even though the sun moves across the equator during the seasonal cycle. From there, he went on to study the annual cycle and variability over all the tropical oceans, and his research interests kept getting broader and broader, including observations, models, and theory, and his output of interesting work kept increasing. In fact, Shang Ping might be just about the most productive and prolific climate scientist I know. I don't usually state these kind of statistics. I think they're superficial, but I'll do it here anyway. Shang Ping is the author or co-author of over 350 peer-reviewed articles. That's a high number, but even more impressive is that they're all good. Okay, I've only read a small subset, but those were all insightful, clear, and original. So there were many reasons I wanted to talk to Shang Ping, but one of them was just to understand how he does it. How he got there is fascinating too, though, and we spend a lot of time on that in the first part of the conversation. Shang Ping's story begins in China. He was a kid during the Cultural Revolution, but because that ended while he was still in school, he got to go to college, which he explains he almost certainly couldn't have done if he'd been a few years older. And it was only then, when he got to college, that he first saw the ocean, which is a little ironic considering what his line of work ended up being. From there, he went to grad school in Japan, then to the U.S. for a postdoc, then back to Japan for his first faculty position, and then back to the U.S., eventually ending up in his current position as a professor at the Scripps Institute of Oceanography in La Jolla, California. While Shang Ping is incredibly productive and successful, what's perhaps most amazing about him is that he does this without being an egotistical, insecure, or competitive person. As you can hear clearly in this interview, he's motivated purely by curiosity and love of the subject, and he's always calm and unruffled in the face of the mundane professional challenges that weigh some of us down. I often ask guests at the end of the interview if they still feel privileged to do the work that we do. Everyone says yes, and Shang Ping is no exception, but perhaps more than some of us, he manages to stay appreciative of that and in touch with the joy of doing science. There are a lot of dimensions of this work that I want this podcast to capture, but that joy is maybe first among them. I think you'll be able to hear it clearly in this conversation, and I'm so grateful for that. So with that, here's my conversation with Shang Ping Xie. Thanks for doing this, Shang Ping. Yeah, thank you, Adam, for having me. <laughs> okay, I'm so happy you could join me. So usually we start with uh, guest biography. Mm -hmm. So if you're willing to do that, can we start at the beginning with where you're from? Okay, so I originally from uh, China, from a, a place uh, called uh, Quizhou. So Quizhou is a, a small city, about maybe uh, 300 miles 
southwest of Shanghai. So it, it's considered to be a part of uh, eastern China. The province uh, of uh, Quizhou uh, has a long coastline, uh, basically neighboring Shanghai uh, to right. the south. But my, my hometown is uh, something like uh, 150 miles from the coast. Okay. So actually, I never saw ocean until really? I, I went to college. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I never saw ocean. <laughs> That's funny yeah, because but, you're an oceanographer. Yeah, but it's kind of funny in retrospect. Now I recognize uh, my hometown, you know, the, the climate and weather are strongly modulated by ocean. You know, first of all, you know, I just remember every summer there would be a, a typhoon coming. And then, you know, of course, uh, as uh, children, we, we all like uh, play uh, in the heavy rains of a typhoon, right? Although the, you know, the, the adults are kind of, <laughs> they, they don't like that. <laughs> so, so, yeah, in retrospect, I now I understand, you know, typhoons uh, in kind of a severe storms uh, uh, born over the ocean and they travel to my hometown. And of course, uh, uh, you know, that part of uh, China uh, is strongly influenced by uh, so-called uh, East Asia summer monsoon. So it's part of a broad uh, Asian monsoon system. And that's also strongly influenced by uh, land-ocean interaction, so to speak. So those things, of course, I, I had no idea. <laughs> so that, that was uh, kind of my childhood. So I, I was born there and lived there until uh, I got a chance to go to college, which uh, is in Qingdao. What did your parents do? Yeah, my, my father uh, was a chemical engineer. Okay. So, so he was sent to kind of a build a, a, a very big uh, chemical plant, basically. So, you know, the, the town is uh, part of a so-called state-owned enterprise. You know, it's a big uh, right. chemical corporation. Yeah, so that's what my father uh, did. And my, my mother did many different jobs. But, <laughs> yeah, she, she wasn't like a scientist or anything like that. <laughs> but so were you interested in science already as a child? Uh, yeah, I guess uh, I was, uh, when I finished uh, uh, elementary school, going up to uh, middle school, that was the, the end of uh, the Cultural Revolution. And of course, uh, Cultural Revolution is uh, a very uh, different uh, era. You know, that there were no books, <laughs> no science. Wow. Even schooling is not considered to be important so because that has no bearing on your life, you know, no matter how well you study. So like a young graduates from a high school, they were sent to countryside, you know, doing labors and so on. So I, I was uh, very lucky, you know, when I started uh, middle school, uh, the cultural revolution was over. So I guess a few years later, uh, Deng Xiaoping said, students uh, should uh, have an opportunity to go to college through a fair uh, entrance exam. So that, that was <laughs> a big uh, turning point you know, in my life and many other people uh, of my age, you know, because in a sense, you can change your life and future by studying. So that, that's a very, very different time. <laughs> 
So, so, so when did the Cultural Revolution? What was the the end? When was yeah? The, so I guess uh, maybe there are two different views on this. So one is uh, when uh, Chairman Mao died. So that was in 1976. And, and the, a second view is uh, uh, the start of uh, open door policy. So that was in 1978. And then the Cultural Revolution, the start was uh, 1966. So I was too young to remember anything about the beginning, the early part of the Cultural Revolution. But the end part, you know, changed my life. <laughs> so you were aware, like, I mean, while it was still was a Cultural Revolution, you were you had some awareness of what that meant and you know yeah, how it so, had been different before and yeah you just uh, the future is uh, completely unpredictable and arbitrary right <laughs> yeah. and, and there are very few books around certainly not not books on science yeah i, I don't think i read many books uh, you know in my childhood just because there were no books <laughs> so so many books around my my father had some uh, textbook on uh, calculus, Russia, and uh, chemistry. So, I guess uh, chemistry is a little hard to learn by yourself, and Russia is a bit hard to learn by yourself. So I tried to uh, learn calculus by myself. Uh, maybe it was the first summer break of my high school. You know? Yeah, so benefited from my my father's uh, books. You know? He has a uh, wooden box you know, with all his textbooks inside. <laughs> wow. So, so your early exposure to science was, in a sense, was these books that were quite rare and special that you had them. And you, you know, if your yeah. father hadn't already had them, you couldn't get them anywhere else. And yeah, was... also, you know, I, I benefit from uh, entering middle school after the Cultural Revolution was over. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, in my first year in the middle school, there were a few uh, new teachers uh, f uh, fresh out of the college. So during the Cultural Revolution, uh, universities uh, are partially open, but you cannot go to university through your own effort, right? So, so basically, the party or the government, they assign people. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that, that's how it worked. But then uh, in the first year of my middle school, there came a few uh, new teachers out of uh, teacher's college. So a math teacher uh, who kind of uh, was uh, like the teacher of our class, right? So I guess uh, in China, like we always study in the same classroom. And then the class would have like uh, 50 kids about. And there was one teacher uh, assigned to look after uh, the 50 kids in the in the in the class, so this math teacher, he was a kind of a very uh, kind of motivational and 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 curious in a sense. So mm. he was uh, one of the teachers that I really think kind of uh, taught us uh, more more than mathematics. So I remember, like uh, after we were finishing uh, middle school, going up uh, to high school, and then. You know, the first wave of entrance exam was uh, for like vocational schools, you know, not, not mm -hmm. like uh, universities, right? So they admit graduates from middle school and then they teach you a certain uh, professions, right? Yeah. 
and then you spend uh, maybe three, two or three years, and then you, when you graduate, you're guaranteed to have a decent job. So I, I, I thought, you know, that, that's the first time we have the opportunity to kind of uh, use uh, your talent, right, to compete for a job. So I, I was seriously thinking, applying for uh, such a vocational school. Mm. Because, uh, you know, for, for more than 10 years, right, during the Cultural Revolution, there were no such opportunities. But then when I, when I went to talk to this uh, math teacher, he told me, uh, don't go there. Uh, <laughs> mm. Uh, <laughs> mm. He said, uh, you should try go to college. Mm. So that, that was a kind of a, a turning point, right? So, yeah, I guess uh, somehow he, 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 he saw something. <laughs> I should not just uh, get a job. <laughs> is this yeah, guy still so, around? Can, can I ask, is this, is this man still alive? Yeah, so uh, apparently uh, about a few years ago, he was uh, from uh, Shanghai. So he himself was sent to countryside <laughs> uh-huh. during the Cultural Revolution. And uh, he, he somehow was picked to go to teacher's college. A few years ago, uh, you know, uh, our middle school class had a reunion. Uh-huh. And then they invited uh, him to come back. But somehow, I, yeah, I, I couldn't make it. But they, they sent me uh, pictures, everything. So I wrote to him and kind of thank him for that, right? So, so he was uh, very happy. <laughs> That's great. I mean, I just asked because it's for, it, many people who have ended up as you know professional scientists have some story about some teacher that had an influence yeah. like this. So I'm yeah. always curious to find out if that person is, has ever found out that their student was successful, you know, and they had some influence. It's, it must be it must be wonderful for for them yeah. to know that. Yeah, I, I knew he he would be very happy. I, I think he's a math teacher, but he, he's a lot more than a math teacher. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so that, how it is with some Yeah, people. so yeah. That, that is uh, something, you know, hard to even imagine uh, these days. But there was a time uh, in China, uh, you know, when the door was uh, uh, open slightly, a lot of people <laughs> want to change their life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that was uh, such an extraordinary time. So I was lucky, you know, to have the opportunity <laughs> to go to college. <laughs> right. And so yeah. you went to Qingdao, right? For, to the, yeah. This, yeah. So already, I mean, I know that famous university has ocean in the name of it. Yeah. So does that mean you already had a decision to do something involving the ocean at that time? I don't really understand how the, what it means, the name of the university. If, if the whole university is really about the ocean or it's just yeah. in the name. And it, yeah. How does it work? So uh, I think uh, the universities at that time uh, in China followed uh, quite a bit of a uh, Soviet system. So yeah. most universities are highly specialized. Yeah. The school I went to uh, is now called Ocean University of China in Qingdao, a coastal yeah. city north of Shanghai. Yeah. At that time, it was called uh, Sandong College of Oceanography. Uh. So Sandong is the name of a uh, of the province where the city of Qingdao is, uh, is in. Yeah, as you can see, it's a college of oceanography. <laughs> so how did that end up being where, I mean, how did you choose that? In our high school, uh, there was a student who is a year above me. So he went to uh, Qingdao for this college of oceanography. And then he wrote back to uh, the principal of our school. 
And he, he said, oh, Qingdao is really great, right? And, and, and also both my father and my elder brother, uh, they went to Qingdao and they said, we saw ocean. He said, ocean is just uh, kind of uh, incredible. You cannot see the boundary. You know, I, 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 <laughs> my hometown, you know, when almost uh, 360 degree, when you look out, you see some mountains, right? So uh-huh. I just couldn't even imagine uh, there are things that without boundaries. <laughs> uh-huh. So that, you know, I think that might be a reason, you know, I kind of thought, oh, Qingdao, uh, coastal city and uh, oceanography, yeah. Look pretty interesting. <laughs> but but you hadn't really thought about it before that. I mean, it just sort of came up at no, that time. No, you know, China, even today, you know, you go to schools uh, according to uh, how you score uh, in, like, entrance exam. Yeah. So I don't think my, my grades from my entrance exam were that great, right? So I have uh, limited choices. So that... That is uh, one of the reasons, to be honest, right? And oceanography, you know, I, I guess, uh, you know, what, what my father and uh, elder brother told me about ocean and also this uh, high school alarm, uh, you know, I, I think uh, they, are, they are all factors <laughs> contributing hmm. uh, to my decision to go to uh, college oceanography. So did, there's different majors within the school? You could be... yeah. So were you yeah, a physical so, oceanographer already or, or what? Yeah, so, so I guess uh, the college oceanography at that time uh, admits uh, 400 students a year. Oh, so a small school. Yeah, so it specialized the college. Okay, yeah. And remember uh, at that time, about 1% of uh, the student of my age, right, in China mm-hmm. could go to college. It's that kind of a narrow uh, uh, opening, right? So you have yeah, to yeah. Uh, squeeze through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the whole school uh, admits uh, 400 students. And then there are several departments, like the department, chemistry, biology, geology, physics, mathematics, and, and then uh, oceanography. <laughs> yeah. Did you, get, did you go to sea at all in your part of your education? Oh, yeah. So I was... Uh, physical oceanography major, actually. So that requires research crew to be on research vessel for, I think, like uh, two or three weeks. Uh, so we, we mm-hmm. went out to Shanghai and then to uh, East China Sea. Uh, in, in, that was uh, very fun, you know, a lot of fun, you know, because all, all the 40 uh, classmates uh, went together. But I was a seasick. So, so first, when we got on board of the research vessel, everyone was uh, super excited. You know, just uh, everybody thought it's going to be a wonderful experience. But then, uh, I guess, on our way to Shanghai, in the middle, uh, there was a storm. <laughs> so the sea got so rough. Yeah. And then, I guess, maybe a half or more than a half of our classmates all got sick. So, yeah, including you. <laughs> yeah, including myself. <laughs> so that that's part of a, a privilege, I would say, you know, to be out of sea for two or three weeks. Uh, yeah, so we, we kind of measured the temperature and the salinity uh, from uh, Nansen bottles. Uh-huh. I don't think at that time 
college oceanography had any CTDs. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Because they, yeah, it just, uh, they barely managed to open the, the, the universities. The, right. Conductivity, temperature. Uh, depth. Depth, yeah. Yeah. That would be the modern way to measure those things. Exactly. So the first time I saw a CTD was uh, many years later in Japan. <laughs> so Nansen bottle is you actually put a bottle over the side and pull up yeah, the Yeah, and then you the flip, uh, you know, you, you drop a weight, right? And that trigger uh, some uh, mechanism to flip the bottle. So then they uh -huh. take the water sample and seal the, the bottle. So you can, you can do chemical analysis of uh, water inside the bottle. You flip it so you can get the water from some depth and don't get contaminated. Yeah, it's exactly. coming back so, up. Yeah, yeah okay, so yeah. The, and then the, that sends a signal to seal the bottle. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. they still use those for some things, but yeah, not. Yeah. Not, so not, yeah. maybe not for temperature and stuff. Yeah. Like these days, probably uh, you can find them in museums. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I mean, but people still do water sampling to measure, you know, some other. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I went on one cruise two years ago and I saw some. I mean, really? I well, some, yeah, I mean, to measure things that are hard to measure where you need to take the water to the lab, you know, to measure it so you. Yeah, I'm sure it's not the same. Like a sampler, uh, like, like uh, attached onto CTD, you know, they they are they're much easier to control. I guess the Nansen. I'm sure the tech. Yeah, I'm sure the technology is not the same, but it was something with a lot of yeah. bottles on it that open and close and. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Nansen Nansen bottles are very impressive. They're made of uh, like uh, bronze, right? So oh, really? really impressive. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, 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 what did you think at that time when you're going through this education? What did you? What was your vision of what you'll do after that? I mean, what was the sort of plan for future? Did you think you'll be a physical oceanographer and and scientist yeah. or something else? Or so at that time, China is more a socialist uh, country, right? Yeah. So you don't get so much to choose. If I went to uh, college oceanography, my job must be uh, oceanography related. Right. Maybe right. some uh, marine station on some islands. Right. I see. So it wasn't just that that's the only thing you're prepared to do, but the, the you yeah, would the actually be assigned plan, a job. It's called a planned economy, right? So, well, so everything actually, is planned. Okay, including down to the level of your individual job. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you, if you refuse to, to take the job assigned to you, yeah. there are severe consequences. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I guess I, I knew it was like this at some point, but because it hasn't been like this for some time, I... I yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess uh, maybe 10 years from my, my time, things all changed. You know, yeah. Because the things that cannot be planned anymore. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> yeah. right. So I, I know, of course, that you ended up leaving. So I want to yeah. hear how, how you got to that point. I mean, what was the process of how that yeah, happened? Yeah, so I, I think after four-year college, uh, there are opportunities out there in other words going to graduate school yeah. so yeah so again i said like, like china was a plant economy so you have limited choices when when you graduate from a four-year college but if you graduate from a graduate school you have uh, more choices <laughs> sure and then uh another thing that attracted me was uh, you know Although at that time, China was a very poor country, but I think uh, the country had, had the vision to uh, spend uh, real money uh, to send uh, 
some students to to learn uh, advanced science technology overseas. Mm-hmm. So, because uh, college oceanography is the only four-year college specialized oceanography, we had a few slots for overseas uh, graduate studies. Yeah, so of course, uh, you know, uh, it's uh, highly competitive, but somehow I, I managed to pass that uh, requirements, right? So, yeah, so that that's another inducement, right? <laughs> so, I mean, was it was it just that, I mean, the, the attraction of going overseas to, to study for graduate school, was it some combination of just you know, the competitive yeah. thing and you, you win. So that's the prize. And so you just want to do it to win or, or versus oh. wanting, wanting to see another country and, you know, have a chance to leave China and see what the rest of the world is like, or did you really, were you really excited about, about research already and kind of, Oh, I think so. I think both, I think it's both, you know, yeah. it just represents, uh, you know, opportunities, uh, both for my life and for my scientific career. Right. So I, I guess uh, once uh, I, applied and accepted for overseas graduate school, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I feel I have to commit it to a, a scientific career. You know, ju- it just be fair, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just too good opportunity to pass. You know, again, China at that time is uh, very different, but I guess uh, a lot of people, they had uh, high hopes for their future. So I, I guess, uh, uh, you know, in, in that sense, I was fortunate to be uh, in the era of high hope. You know, mm. although you know we had very little of everything, <laughs> but but I guess uh, you know we all all felt uh, you know if we work hard, uh, something good is going to happen. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so I know that you went to Japan, which you know in the U.S. Of course, we have many Chinese scientists in our field. But I know almost none who who ever worked in Japan, so I'm kind of interested to hear yeah. about that. So that that is also the consequence of uh, plant economy. Yeah. So I guess uh, you know, U.S. and China. I think you know at least uh, during my era, uh, the diplomatic relationship was a little unstable. You know, in 1984, yes, I think. Uh, maybe 83, 80, 84. I don't know what happened, but somehow China said that nobody goes to U.S. I see. Uh, <laughs> because otherwise that would have been the most normal place yeah, to it go? Could, or? It could be, but it really depends. So sometimes they sent to U.S., sometimes they sent to kind of a, a European countries, Yeah. and, and sometimes uh, Japan. So uh, I, I guess uh, in China at least... Uh, Japan was viewed as uh, a country of uh, uh, very advanced uh, science and technology mm. and also uh, kind of a sharing a similar culture and certain other things. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, at that time, we in China kind of uh, regarded uh, Japan very highly. And also Japan at that time, they tried to uh, help China uh, yeah. in very sincere ways. Yeah. So that that's how I, you know, I ended up uh, uh, going to Japan again. You know, I I didn't have any choice or influence, so to speak. <laughs> so yeah, so I I went to uh, 
Sendai. So that that's where uh, the Tohoku University is located. Yeah. So that university, you know, even in China, uh, is not that well known. Uh, but it's kind of a one of the top three schools uh, in, in in Japan. So I went to physical oceanography laboratory there, and uh, there were uh, about uh, maybe ten graduate students in, in that physical oceanography laboratory. So that the laboratory was a kind of a very interesting. So the lab has uh, four faculty members, I think, yeah, four, and two two of them were studying uh, ocean surface waves, mm-hmm. and one does uh, observational large scale oceanography, and another uh, specialized in GFD. So, you know, I was. Uh, Kind of a you know as you you probably can tell, because I wanted to go study mathematics in my college, right? So mm. naturally, I was very uh, theoretically motivated, uh, mm. interested in the theory. Yeah. So naturally, I I picked uh, uh, the GFD professor. <laughs> and, so, and tell me his name. Atsushi uh, Kubogawa. He does a uh, like like theoretical oceanography. But what was your thesis about? So that you might find uh, quite uh, surprising. Yeah, maybe I start from a master's thesis, right? So in Japan, okay. you just have to finish a two-year master program before you can go on right. to study PhD. For my master's thesis, I built a, a couple ocean atmosphere model, so like gill model and uh, shallow water ocean, to study a uh, couple oscillations. Uh, you know, hoping to understand something about El Nino Southern Oscillation. Okay. And this was uh, in the 80s still. Yeah. So, so you I managed were... to publish my uh, master's thesis in the second volume of a Journal Climate <laughs> in 1989. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, so even Kane and Zibiak had not been doing it for very long at that time. I mean, you were in the early wave. Yeah. Right? So maybe I, I'm the fifth uh, uh, couple model. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't know. I, uh, you know, yeah, I, I but, guess but, Jay McCreary uh, did uh, build the model, and uh, of course, Zibiak uh, Ken, and also uh, Paul Schaff and uh, yeah, yeah. Suarez. Yeah, but uh, I mean, but you weren't separated from them very much in time. I mean, they, you, maybe you were the fifth, but was still close to the first one in, in terms of Yeah, we think years. five years at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so maybe that's the first U-folding time of uh, couple modeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but uh, I, I felt uh, like uh, the Gill model is not kind of capturing the physics, moist physics uh, well enough. So I, yeah. I somehow decided that I want to uh, devote my PhD thesis for, for to understand moist atmosphere dynamics better. So my, my PhD thesis was actually to use a, a two-level uh, global atmosphere model to model a Madden-Julian oscillation. Wow, okay. <laughs> so that, that's kind of the connection, right? <laughs> Between... Your and my research. <laughs> There's probably more connections than that, but yeah, that's a that's a good one. One, one of I yeah. I mean, I mean, the thing that I'm just impressed by how you know for the time, I mean, almost nobody was doing theory of the MJO at that time. So my my understanding of like the history of 
our field in Japan is that like there was a lot of great work early on, right? Especially in tropical meteorology. I mean, Matsuno, yeah, Matsuno yeah. Yanai and Arakawa, okay, they yeah. left the country, came to the US, but they were originally trained in Japan. There was like a great tradition of exactly. tropical GFD. So it, in other words, you were kind of hitting on very hip topics. I mean, you were like yeah. ahead of the, <laughs> so you wouldn't have found that anywhere. I mean, it must not have been an accident. That Yeah, so that, I, I think, uh, you know, Hayashi Sumi, right? So the first uh, aqua planet, uh, yeah. Atmospheric GCM simulation. Yeah. Hayashi and Sumi was uh, 1986, I think. Uh-huh. So that, that had a strong impression on me. And uh, also, uh, uh, Kerry Emanuel and uh, David Nealon, uh, Isaac Held's uh, uh, evaporation wind yeah, feedback, yeah. right? Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. Uh, 1989-ish, maybe? 87 was the paper. Yeah, first 87. Paper yeah, so those are the other basis for my kind of a take on Madden Julian oscillation. Right. So, so I, I, I built a global two-level model. And then what I found is, uh, at least in that context, when I include the wind dependence in the evaporation calculation, and then suddenly uh, the tropical convection gets uh, super well organized, right? Then I thought it, it was uh, Madden Julian oscillation. Mm. But it turns out, these days, it, it looks more like a convectively coupled carbon wave. Right. Yeah. But, that was, but that was what everybody was doing at that time. That was true of Emmanuel and Nealon's work also. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was uh, very proud of, of what I did until, you know, I, I, I went to University of Tokyo. Uh, a, a friend of mine invited me to give a seminar in Matsuno's uh, laboratory, right? So yeah. I, I give it a talk. And then after the talk, uh, there was a female graduate student uh-huh. who kind of uh, had a discussion with me. Uh-huh. And then she, she said, oh, your evaporation wind feedback uh, put the, the strongest winds and the strongest evaporation east of a convective center right, of the management oscillation. Uh-huh. But in my observations, uh, in the warm pool between Indian Ocean and Western Pacific, that highest winds and highest evaporation happen uh, west of uh, <laughs> convective <center>. Wow. <laughs> so that, that made me uh, recognize, right? So... <laughs> Who is this graduate student? Oh, she, she's very important now in, in, in Japan. So she's uh, the program manager for TRIM and the GPM. Uh, so I think she adopted the her husband's name, Liko Oki. Oh, I've seen her. I've met her yeah. in meetings. Okay, so she was real sharp. Yeah. That's a criticism. So the Madden-Julian oscillation is the uh, yeah. biggest biggest tropical mode yeah. of weather and climate variability on the time scale of month or two. And you have exactly. these episodes where the monsoon sort of fluctuates and the rainy periods move east at a slow speed and affects weather around the world. And Madden yeah. Julian discovered it in the 70s, although really it was discovered earlier in China. We should talk about that in a minute. And the theory was just starting to happen now. And the critique she made of your theory, yeah, the same critique was true of the other theories you cited from that time. Yeah. And I feel like that didn't really get fully absorbed by the field until about 20 years later. Yeah. So this was a this was a very sophisticated I mean you were at the center of the of, of the world in a sense to be having that argument. Yeah. You know, at the time bit. and place I, you were having it. 
in terms yeah, I think of Hayashi Sumi was a, was kind of a gold standard at that time, right? So yeah, where, where were they employed? I don't. I don't... Uh, University of Tokyo. So so oh, they, okay. they they were in Matsuno's lab basically. I see. Okay. Yeah. 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 So Hayashi Sumi, at least to me, generated a, a, a huge interest in organization yeah. of a tropical convention. Just for the people who don't know, Hayashi and yeah. Sumi is two people who wrote a, a paper. That's what you were referring to. Right? Yeah. Hayashi was a PhD student and Sumi was uh, his mentor. Yeah. I see. Okay. Yeah. They're, but they're, they're, they were both in uh, Matsuno's laboratory at, at University of Tokyo. Yeah. And before we go on to talk more about the science, can you just say a little bit about the experience of being a foreign student coming from China in Japan? Because <laughs> I feel like that's not a story I have heard. Yeah. I, I don't know anybody who had that experience. We don't think of Japan as having a huge number of foreign students. Maybe that's wrong. Were there many? Oh, or Oh, you, there were very, very few uh, international students at my time in Japan. The Japan I saw during my graduate school time uh, was, uh, you know, people were, were very friendly uh, to people uh-huh. from China just because uh-huh. There were so few uh, international students. You know, historically, uh, there are a lot of uh, cultural and uh, human uh, exchanges. You know, people yeah. go there and, and doing things. Yeah. So, and, and also, just for a long while, people in Japan can, could not come to China, and, and people from China couldn't go right. to Japan. So I, I think uh, I was uh, very highly valued <laughs> in, okay. the, in the laboratory. I think people were very supportive in a sense oh. also. Yeah. So I, I, I felt uh, very lucky uh, to be in that laboratory. And there were kind of, as I said, there were about 10 graduate students. So that was uh, really kind of learning together, uh, doing things together. And did you learn the <laughs> language before you got there or are you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I guess uh, they set up a, a language camp in a college of foreign languages. And the Ministry of Education of China, Japan, they jointly run this uh, language uh, camp. Uh, so we had uh, professors uh, coming from Japan teaching our language. Uh, maybe I, I think we, we were there for like uh, 10 months in total. And the, the last three months, actually, we, we kind of uh, did a summer review of uh, basic chemistry, physics, mathematics, and uh, literature, you know, everything, just because mm. we're supposed to go and study science or engineering, right? So, mm. so they yeah. need to warm us, warm, warm us up. And, <laughs> they, you know, the, the teachers even brought the personal computers to yeah. the language camp and, 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 and taught, taught us how to uh, program uh, code, right? <laughs> wow. That's uh, a time, you know, I think uh, both people in both countries, they the kind of a very kind of value uh, such exchanges, yeah. So, okay. yeah, same same might be slightly different now, but I still kept in touch, kind of a, also collaborating with, uh, you know, friends, uh, you know, I I made <laughs> during that time. <laughs> so you did your PhD thesis on the on the MJO? Yeah, 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 yeah. So that that that's that. But then you know, I, as you said, right? So, <laughs> so. Uh, uh, Lee Kaoki uh, kind of basically, uh, you know, she, she was very nice, right? So she just uh, yeah. t- told me what her research was. But I recognized 
my thesis might be a little off the mark. <laughs> well, it was state of the art for the time, but yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, but the, th the thing I just wanted to mention since we were, you know, we started with your childhood in the cultural revolution is that I can't remember if you were a co-author on this paper or not, but a couple of years ago, um, so the MJO is named the MJO after two American scientists oh, who yeah, discovered yeah, yeah. it in 1970, right? Uh -huh. And then a couple yeah. of years ago, a bunch of um, Chinese well, scientists, Tim uh, Lee, I think, yeah, no, Tim my, Lee was the first yeah. author, discovered that it had been first discovered in China by a scientist whose last name is the same as yours, I believe. Yeah, sure. I, I, so I, I, he he was uh, in Peking University. I I, I read right. the, the BAMS paper. But I wasn't involved in any of it. So I, re I read the BAMS paper, and then I read the original paper because it has now been translated to English. It, oh, really? It, okay. Until now, it, until about a year ago, it was not. Oh, really? Actually, okay. Ding Ma, who you might know, he was postdoc of me at the time when his advisor it, from China, his undergraduate advisor, got him to translate it. So now the original paper has been oh, translated. available in English. Okay. In English, in the same journal that originally published it. So Chinese journal publish it again in English. Wow, wow, okay. That, that's it's good. quite short. It's very uh -huh. short, and it doesn't have all the detail of Baden and Julian, mm -hmm. but it's there. I mean, you could tell they saw it, and they knew it was something new, and they understood that it was new. So the essence is there. And that was in 63, so seven years before okay. Baden and Julian. And until a couple of years ago, nobody knew that, until Tim Lee or whoever rediscovered it. I talked to a couple of people about why this disappeared and why nobody knew about it and why when Baden and Julian came out with their paper, how come nobody said, hey, this was already known? And apparently it was because this guy who did it disappeared in the Cultural Revolution. Is that Yeah, the, yeah is I that don't the... know him very well, but I guess uh, every scientist probably suffered something <laughs> during the yeah. Cultural Revolution just because, you know, science was perceived as uh, part of a Western culture. And even more than that, this guy, Shea, I think had been a student or postdoc or something of Rossby. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so he I had Western so. connections, so that yeah, was even yeah, worse. Yeah. But in yeah, other words, so, it was it was a big, you know, Chinese scientists should have got credit for this major breakthrough, but because of Cultural Revolution, yeah, so he yeah, did it, so, and it yeah. became the Americans, you know, got credit for it. Yeah, I I, I completely understand. You know, just uh, even see for for Professor Xie, right? Yeah. In, in Peking, I, I don't think he's in any position of knowing what Madden Julian. Uh, did right so i don't yeah. know what he was doing <laughs> at that time yeah so anyway it's just a good story yeah. so okay so that's your phd thesis so you you do the global moist two-layer model on the mjo uh oki convinces you it's wrong and so then what's your next uh, uh step? okay then i think uh, maybe during the last year of my phd in sendai so i i, I began thinking of uh my next move, right? So I, I talked to uh, Toshio Yamagata. Uh -huh. So he, he was a uh, you know, very distinguished uh, scientist yes. in oceanography and a couple ocean atmosphere dynamics. So he, yes. he with uh, George Philander, basically developed the, one of the first theories of uh, El Nino Southern Oscillation. Yeah, uh, yeah. Coupled uh, instability between mm -hmm. the ocean and atmosphere. So I, I consulted uh, uh, Toshio Yamagata, and he said, oh, you should do postdoc with George Philander yeah. <laughs> at the Princeton GFDL. He's always a wonderful place. Yeah. I, I, I can write to George, uh, introduce you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, Toshio Yamagata, he's just so wonderful person, right? So I, I never wrote a paper with him. 
worked with him. But he he just uh, he he wanted to kind of mentor uh, you know students and young scientists, right? So he yeah. went his way to to uh, introduce me to George. Of course, that, at that time, you know, you only write uh, in physical letters. <laughs> right. Still at that time, yeah. And then, then I, I guess uh, as part of application, uh, I need uh, two other letters. And of course, uh, my advisor in the physical oceanography lab would write uh, one of the letters. And yeah. then Hoshio said, oh, I, I can't have Matsuno to write letter for you. <laughs> oh, that must have helped. <laughs> so, yeah, sure. So that, that, that's, uh, <laughs> I, I guess, uh, how I... <laughs> got to uh, Princeton and GFDL. <laughs> and there wasn't any more problem with the Chinese government stopping you from going at this time? Oh, no, 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 no. I, I guess uh, they probably wouldn't encourage me <laughs> to, to do that, but I, I guess nobody stopped me, right? Yeah. So I, I guess uh, in that sense, uh, the government had the vision, right? Yeah, anyway, so <laughs> I, I was uh, at least, uh, I was able to <laughs> to to accept the the postdoc offer from uh, GFDL Princeton. So you went to Princeton about the early 90s, if I remember. 1991, yeah, 1991, okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so that was a really uh, eye-opening period for me because, uh, as I said earlier, I, I was uh, kind of a very theoretically motivated, interested, yeah. right? Right. So I, I, I saw problems from a theoretical point of view, right? So yeah. like uh, Rossby waves, uh, carbon wave, and couple instability, this uh, kind of a, a perspective. But at the GFDL and Princeton, I, I saw, you know, as, uh, you know, the leading scientists, they approach a problem very differently. They're always uh, motivated by some observational facts, phenomena, and then uh, develop a theory models or maybe adapt a theory or models to uh, explain uh, those phenomena or observations. So that was uh, kind of a, a big uh, uh, shock to me. <laughs> I mean, so the, the, the view before was you're kind of doing classical geophysical fluid dynamics and you know you're thinking about wave modes and equations and all of that but in your thesis you were trying you know you made a a, a global model to explain an observational phenomenon so so can oh, you just say again what's the yeah, difference I well mean, well observation in a sense i guess uh, it's uh, mediated by hayashi sumi in the echo planet uh, <laughs> right so i i know a little bit about the uh, observation papers on managing oscillation. Mm -hmm. But I don't I didn't think that was essential. <laughs> I see. In other words, uh, I probably put too much emphasis face in the theoretical power, right? I mean, just the reason this is so interesting is that I mean, the 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 lab you're in in Princeton is called the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Lab. Exactly. It's famous as a place where a lot of yeah. great theoretical work was done, yeah. even though it was also yeah. built to do numerical modeling and, you know, climate prediction. But, but I mean, it was very much a, 
you know, ivory tower kind of place in those days, but there was some observational work there. So you felt that it brought you closer to the data in some sense? Uh, yeah, I guess uh, maybe not like uh, so much observational work done at the GFDL. Right, but they but were more certainly, you know, leading scientists, they are motivated not by theoretical interest so much. Right, right. But rather by new observations, new challenges to explain or yeah, interpret yeah. Uh, observational results and phenomena. Yeah. So yeah. that, you know, that, that's kind of a 180 degree change, right? <laughs> in, in terms of uh, uh, how do we value, appreciate uh-huh. uh, a certain piece of work. Right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. So relevance that, that, yeah. yeah not just not just elegant thinking it, or beautiful exactly. uh analysis but relevance yeah so that that was that was some uh, transition period and plus i had to publish that paper although i i kind of know i i'm probably not going to continue that path you mean your thesis work yeah, uh, yeah. moist uh, yeah. uh waves uh, stuff mm-hmm. uh yeah so that 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 turns out to be good in, in, in a sense because that allows me to kind of uh, open up my eyes uh, to look for new problems. Mm-hmm. So, but but I I did uh, diligently publish the paper because I know uh, there there is something useful, even though uh, it might not be a uh, uh, the theory from <laughs> Right. So I mean, I I my recollection is that you worked on Enso with. Philander, which is that correct? You know, the reason I I was interested, and also George hired me as a postdoc because uh, Ansel, right? Yeah. But I, at Princeton, very from very beginning, I kind of felt uh, the major interest at that time was no longer Ansel itself. You know, I, I guess that that at that time. Uh, George Flander and uh, Mike Wallace and a few others, uh, they shifted their focus to study uh, the seasonal cycle in equatorial Pacific Ocean Mm. and Atlantic. Mm. So because uh, for them, uh, they felt like they understood ANSO at Mm. some level already. Mm -hmm. You know, I guess people have developed a couple of theory, you know, in, in the kind of conceptual level, right? The Biakin's yeah. feedback and why yeah. uh, uh, the Pacific would oscillate between El Nino and La Nina. Yeah, yeah, that happened in the late 80s. And, yeah, yeah. and the Flander, of course, was critical to that. So, exactly. Yeah. You know, but they, they felt uh, we didn't understand the seasonal variation of uh-huh. the equatorial Pacific. And also, uh, George Flander published a, a book in 1990, uh, El Nino Southern Oscillation. Yeah. So that toward the end of the book, uh, there was some outlook, and he, he mentioned, you know, the ITCC is displaced North Equator, and nobody seemed to know why <laughs> it, mm, it does that. Mm, mm. So that left an impression on me. Mm. So I guess uh, as soon as uh, I pushed uh, my thesis out for publication, George uh, asked me to go to uh, a NOAA uh, PI meeting in uh, AOML uh, in Miami, uh, Atlantic mm-hmm. uh, Oceanographic uh, Meteorological Laboratory, NOAA. So I, I, I knew I, I was going to be there uh, maybe February 1992. Mm. So George said, 
think about the, the seasonal variation. <laughs> so start thinking about uh, why the, the problem is why uh, the sea surface temperature should have an annual cycle instead of a semi-annual cycle and why the amplitude of the annual cycles is so strong. So in thinking about that, I, I kind of recognize the, the meridional wind might be important. Okay, so wait a second. Let's just set up the problem a little more. So the issue is that even though we have a, a, an annual cycle in the middle latitudes where we live, if you're on the equator, the sun crosses the equator twice per year. Exactly. So you might think that you would have sort of the same thing happen twice per uh -huh. year instead of uh -huh. once per year. And exactly. And and the other feature, as you mentioned, but but maybe non-specialists wouldn't know, is that the so-called intertropical convergence zone, the, the place where the water is the warmest and where the trade winds converge from the two hemispheres and the rainiest place, you would think would would switch across the equator with the sun, but it always stays in the north in in this in the Pacific, basically. Yeah. In, in at least in the East Pacific, where the the region you were studying. So those are yeah. the things you were trying to understand, which are not features of the variability. The El Nino is a sort of every few years yeah, variability, so, but, but oddly, like you felt that that variability was understood better than the basic climate state that happens every year. The problem was raised by George Flander and Mike Wallace and other leading scientists. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. So, so people try to understand why there is a such pronounced uh, annual variations in sea surface temperature. Yeah. So at that, that time, I think uh, the couple ocean atmosphere dynamics uh, focuses on El Nino Southern Oscillation. So that's the interaction between the ocean in the east-west direction across uh, the yeah. Pacific Basin and involving yeah. uh, the east-west wind variations. Yeah, especially near, uh, right on the equator. Yeah, especially. Uh, near international dayline on the equator. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, when we thought about the seasonal variation of sea surface temperature, it's most pronounced in the eastern part of the Pacific. And it seemed to be somehow felt, yeah, I don't quite remember the detail, but somehow we felt uh, the, the north-south winds are going to be important just because the north-south winds can be set to have annual oscillation driven by the solar variations between northern and southern hemisphere. Mm -hmm. And then in thinking about the, the north-south cross-equatorial wind, and, and I kind of recognized uh, this feedback mechanism. Now we call it the wind evaporation SST feedback. Yeah. So that was uh, also uh, interaction across the equator in the north-south direction. Yeah. So I, I was uh, kind of very excited in recognizing uh, the couple ocean atmosphere system is actually intrinsically unstable in the north-south direction. So it doesn't like a symmetrical state, and it has an intrinsic tendency mm -hmm. to break that uh, north-south mm -hmm. symmetry. Mm -hmm. You know, I did some of my modeling study, build uh, some simple model uh, to show uh, that such instability occurs. And it's large enough actually can sustain uh, the coupled warm sea surface temperature and atmosphere convection on one side equator. So that that was uh, kind of idea that what I did 
at the GFDO Princeton. Speaking of uh, that Miami meeting in 1992, at that meeting, I heard uh, Mike Wallace uh, had uh, just published a paper, 1992, <laughs> mm-hmm. in Journal Climate uh-huh. about uh, uh, the observations of uh, seasonal cycle in the Eastern Equatorial Pacific and Atlantic. And uh, his study also clearly uh, indicate uh, the meridional wind oscillation is uh-huh. a more important cause than the variation in the east-west wind. Yeah. Uh, so I was uh, very excited. I said, you know, oh, Mike Wallace uh, yeah. uh, is also saying this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but unlike the ENSO case, I mean, this instability doesn't lead to oscillation really, right? It kind of is pinning it in one side or it's explaining the annual cycle. Yeah. Another realization I had is uh, when I thought about this problem, I realized uh, if I could explain uh, why the ITCC uh, stays north of the equator. That means uh, the winds are always going to be from the south across the equator. And yeah. somehow if I have the sun moving back and forth across the equator, and then as long as the, the solar variation is not too strong, I can have the southerly winds uh, uh, to maintain the direction, but they vary in speed, right? Yeah. And then the speed variation uh, could uh, through uh, upwelling or mixing causing mm. uh, the annual cycle on the equator. So the question was, as uh, Adam, you, you said earlier, sitting on the equator, see on the Galapagos Island, uh, mm. you see a sun uh, going overhead twice a year in March and September, respectively. Yeah. Looking at the solar radiation, there's no difference between March and September. But if I uh, have an ITCC stay north of the equator, then my southerly winds are going to be weaker in March than September. Mm. So I recognize that the break of uh, north-south asymmetry in the mean climate is the cause of the annual cycle uh, mm. on the equator. So because that will cause a, a difference between March and September. In, in, in that sense, the, the two types work this, you know, one single problem. <laughs> yeah. Just and so, to, I mean, we, we should say that this work was very successful. I mean, I, 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 so I entered the field, I was a graduate student in, in starting in 93. I, I graduated in 97, 98. And yeah. I remember hearing, I mean, I was aware of this work, maybe not right when you did it. That was a bit early for me, but. I mean, it became well known quickly. I think it's really? still it's still accepted as basically correct, wow, that, right? Yeah. That, I mean, so you became nice kind of know. you became kind of well known from that, and you know, so then we're gonna you know you became a, a success after that. But I mean, did you did you really feel a sense of like you really solved the problem and and you know that this was a major breakthrough? Did you have that sort of awareness at the at the moment, or I had a mixed feeling, right? So at the one level, uh, I felt. Uh, I broke some uh, secret of nature, right? So I, I yeah. felt uh, I understood the, yeah. the, this problem a little bit. But the problem is I didn't have much confidence, right, for various reasons. So one is, uh, you know, all the couple dynamics was, was, de- was developed uh, based upon, you know, ba- basically is the, the variations of Bjarkin's feedback. So yeah. that that requires uh, interaction between the east-west winds on the equator 
and yeah. uh, ocean summer climate variations, right? So right. in other words, a dynamically coupled system. Yeah. Right. Whereas uh, the mechanism, the west feedback, the, the wind evaporation, SSD feedback, uh, I was thinking about was uh, almost purely thermodynamic, at least right. as far as ocean is concerned. Right. Maybe, maybe we should say it's it's about the wind evaporation. SST is sea surface temperature. So it's about how if the sea surface temperature is warmest north of the equator, that causes the wind to blow yeah, from to the south the, to the north. Yeah. And then that changes the, the, the strength of the wind affects the fluxes of energy yeah. between the ocean and the atmosphere yeah. in such a way as to reinforce the, the, exactly. the system. But, it, but what happens below the surface of the ocean doesn't matter yeah. too much. Yeah, it's, it's not. It's not. And at that time, I guess, uh, you know, like in El Nino model, the surface heat flux is at that time at least exclusively modeled as the Newtonian damping, right? Mm-hmm. A damping on sea surface temperature variations. Whereas mm-hmm. I'm proposing uh, the surface heat flux, you know, alone can cause uh, instability. <laughs> and but you were ready for that from your MJO work, right? You had or is it yeah, is it possible but, that? Yeah, but that MJO, had... I, I I kind of suffered that defeat. <laughs> Yeah, but somehow you must have already had the idea in your mind that that the surface flux is not quite so boring. I mean, yeah, no? but I guess uh, you know, recall uh, Oki's uh, uh, observation result kind of uh, set my research back, right? So I. That... <laughs> <laughs> so that is that what deflated your confidence at this time? Yeah. So just nobody was talking about heat flux, right? I see. So because heat flux uh, is widely recognized as uh, Newtonian damping. So there was a famous paper in first issue of uh, Journal of Physical Oceanography. It's called the Haney type of uh, heat flux parameterization. <laughs> Just minus lambda SST. <laughs> uh. Yeah, so I, I wasn't sure if uh, heat flux could be a such important mechanism. It's so interesting because heat flux is the main way that the atmosphere and the ocean are communicating with each other. Yeah, so that so, a few years later, I you know I, I really thought exactly the same way uh, Adam you just said, because uh, latent heat flux is the the largest uh, component from the surface yeah. of the ocean that offsets the solar radiation in the tropics. So yeah, yeah I guess uh, taking that perspective, then would uh, kind of make a much stronger argument. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But but at least uh, at that time. I had a mixed feeling. On, on one hand, uh, I, I thought I, I understood something new, but on the other hand, I wasn't sure if this is a, a real, real deal or, or again, something will be kind of a uh, refuted from observations. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I, I, I want to make sure we get through the, some of the rest of your career. So, this is a big breakthrough, and it, you know, you must have had some sense that this is you know, establishing you in this field. But then you went to Japan after that. So I want to hear how you went back. Yeah. So I want to hear how that happened. Yeah. So that that is exactly, you know, part of this uh, mixed feeling. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think, you know, I wasn't in such a big rush to publish the, the paper. You know, although I think I first thought about the West feedback and uh, the mechanism of... Uh, annual cycle uh, on the equator in early 1992, right? But I, I, because I, I wasn't confident, so I, I didn't feel a, a rush to publish 
Mm. And then, then of course, uh, you know, Princeton's fellowship is, is for two years, right? So I had to mm. find a, a, another job. Mm. So then I applied to various places and then, you know, all my applications for faculty jobs uh, were, were turned down, right? So because basically, except the, the PhD work uh, at the Princeton, I don't think uh, any of my work has been published. <laughs> right. The lesson here for the postdocs is get the paper yeah. out. <laughs> and also just, uh, I, I think, partially, you know, to be fair, you know, I, my PhD is from a Tohoku University, right? So nobody heard of uh, Tohoku mm. University. So mm. people, I, I, to be fair, I just thought the search committee probably had a hard time to, mm. to figure out the value of uh, this person. <laughs> right. I mean, they must have yeah. all known Philander, but that's... A- yeah. And GFDL. Uh, yeah. But yeah. I, I'm sure that that helped. So I guess uh, after all, I think it, it was, uh, you know, although I had a mixed feeling about this and my work, but also, but I thought I, I, I ultimately I benefit from this just because uh, Mike Wallace uh, was interested uh, in the work uh, I was doing. So he, he was uh, the director of uh, GCEL, you know, joint. Oh, right. I, yes. He went to, uh, right. Yeah. yeah, and he said, "Oh, we we have an opening here. I will just use the, the paper you sent me, the, the manuscript you sent me as application." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. I don't think you could do that anymore, but in those days, maybe you could still do that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I thought that was uh, actually, in retrospect, right? That that's uh, a great thing uh, that happened to me. <laughs> Yeah. Because I, I got to go to University of Washington <laughs> right, right, to right. see, uh, you know, how Mike Wallace uh, operates <laughs> yeah. uh, doing research uh, in close range, right? Yeah, that, that's just one of the most wonderful things happened to me, you know, because, you know, Mike Wallace really uh, showed me uh, how you can kind of know or speak about nature from observations. So, so Mike, he gave a, a talk at the University of Washington School of Oceanography about El Nino. So I thought if I were to give a talk, at least at that time, on El Nino, I would uh, first speak about the equatorial wave theory and then theory right. of a couple of instability. Right. Uh, and so on, right? But right. Mike... Uh, didn't have any of those. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's just, uh, yeah. Sure yeah, I didn't really yeah. think about that. I, I didn't really think about that. So you start as a really pure GFD person and then go to work with Philander, who's, you know, has that background too, but in some sense is also, you know, you're doing modeling and close to the observations. And then to go to work with Wallace, who really is, yeah, his, his brilliance is in condensing the data to a clear story. Yeah. He he yeah. he just has the sharp eyes to yeah, see yeah. things that most people don't see. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, right. So I I just thought that that's one of the best things that happened to me. <laughs> right. And so did you get the paper out during that time? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So so <laughs> I learned the lesson. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, it's and you a, stayed always, in Seattle a year or two, uh, just or for a year. Yeah, just for a year. And then you know, and they opened a, a new department, Ocean Atmospheric Sciences, in Hokkaido, Japan. 
-huh. And they, they said, uh, why don't you come back? Right? So I, I said, oh, yeah, that, that sounds wonderful because it's a stable job and the, the faculty job in Japan is fully funded. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't need to feel any pressure anymore. <laughs> yeah. You don't have yeah. to write proposals at all? Uh, a little bit. Yeah, I guess uh, we need to write the proposals to buy computers, uh, travel if we, we want to travel a little bit. But and not to pay the students or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, the students are all, at that time, I think most self-funded. So they are, their parents. Oh, even pay, PhD students? Yeah, I think so. So the oh, parents, okay. there are very few fellowships. Oh. from uh, Japan Society Promotion of uh, Sciences. I didn't realize that. But I guess their parents, usually their parents pay the tuitions and the students would, would work on some jobs uh, to oh. pay for uh, like rent, uh, oh, okay. meals, those things. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, so that, that was a, a very happy period of my time. So when you say they said, why don't you come back? I mean, so the people who were in this new department yeah. were people you already knew. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. So uh, one of the Hokkaido professors was uh, uh, Kensuke Takeuchi. So he, he worked uh, with uh, Jim O'Brien and Tony Busaraki at uh, uh, Florida State University. Yeah. So he, yeah, he was very, very encouraging and helpful for me. And also they, they invited my graduate mentor, uh, Professor Kurogawa to be a professor at the new department. And actually, the department chair was uh, Matsuno. <laughs> oh, okay, I hadn't realized that. I didn't <laughs> so know So University of Tokyo has a retirement age of 60 and Hokkaido 63. So there are three year uh, difference. <laughs> so, so you got, yeah, but he stayed active a long time after oh, that. Oh, he, he's, uh, yeah, he's just an uh, amazing person. Yeah, just, uh, yeah. That's another kind of a inspiring uh, scientist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Just, uh, yeah. So I, I really enjoyed the time there. Uh, and so you stayed there some well, number five, of years. Five, five years. Yeah, about five years. And then and, went to Hawaii. Right? Yeah. And then a new opportunity opened up, right? So uh, Japan and the U.S. had... Uh, an agreement of cooperation in science uh, technology. Right. And one of uh, the projects under that agreement between uh, the vice president, Al Gore, and the Japanese prime minister yeah. is to establish a climate research center at University of Hawaii. Yeah. So when they started uh, uh, staffing that center, naturally, you know, they, they think I... I might be good to be there. <laughs> so right. I applied uh, and, and got a, a job. Right. There. I mean, naturally, both because you had been a very successful scientist up to that point, but also because you had connections in China, Japan, US. Yeah. And this place was meant to be kind of pan-Pacific yeah. international research center. Exactly. I mean, I don't think... You've really... you been there, you know, in Matsuno's uh, uh, symposium. I, yeah, I, I, I've been there to a couple of conferences. I didn't really ever visit the place, you know, in during normal you know, a normal day, but I know that it was quite a unique, I don't know if it's, it's not quite still operating in the same way now, but uh, it, now it's uh yeah, I think it's different, but, yeah. but it was quite a, a special thing, right? Because Japan yeah. actually funded a lot of it. 
Yeah, it was very, very that, yeah. A very yeah, strong was, participation from the scientists from Japan yeah. and China. And, uh, so the yeah. idea is uh, Hawaii is where East meet the West, right? Yeah. So, yeah, and they really yeah. did it. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess uh, that was uh, a very nice thing uh, Japan did for for climate science. I think you know we we had a really great people, Axel Timmerman and uh, a few other younger people. Yeah, just a lot of interesting research happened there yeah yeah so that that was uh, a kind of a transition back to the u.s and uh, I, I think the greatest uh, thing there is uh, again it's uh, one of the missions is to uh, foster and strengthen the collaborative uh, research between asia and the u.s yeah so so a lot of our funding is used to uh, support graduate students and postdocs. Yeah. So yeah, I guess the uh, postdocs they they kind of stay for two or three years. Yeah. So again, that's uh, kind of a in a sense uh, it's uh, institutional funding, right? So mm. kind of, there's a lot of freedom in terms of uh, the research directions we can pursue. At least uh, you know. The center supports uh, supported uh, quite a few postdocs, so we can explore a new new research, new directions, uh, yeah. and also there there were just uh, very uh, smart young people there. And how long did this period last in in Hawaii, where the, where it was uh, like this? I mean, thirteen the... years in total, I think. Yeah, yeah, thirteen. Yeah, I think it's nineteen ninety nine to two thousand twelve. And and then when at the time I'm about to leave, I guess the funding from Japan has been drastically reduced, just I because see. the things have changed so much over yeah. you know that 15, uh, 12 years. Was that a factor in you leaving, or you just needed it ready for a change? Or uh, yeah, I, I think that was uh, a factor, but also there's a. Uh, other factors, for example, my daughter is uh, leaving for college. <laughs> right, right. So you feel more freedom. To yeah, be. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and also, I just felt that uh, you know it's almost the last chance to move. <laughs> yeah, you know, age one. Yeah. I mean, so you so at that point you went to Scripps in in San Diego, where you are yeah, now. Yeah, so yeah, they they were recruiting uh, climate dynamics. So there are two positions. Yeah, I uh, said. So Either it would would work fine fine for me, so I got one of those. So, so I, I was happy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I mean, so we spent a lot of time talking about your early career, and it's often the case we, you know, we're spending less detail on the later period. I mean, we can't do justice to all the science you did because, I mean, no need. <laughs> well, you, well, you're just one of the most productive people, really, in the field. I mean, the, the amount of research you managed to do and the amount of papers you managed to write is really astonishing. And they're all good. I mean, of course, I've only read a small fraction of them because it's too many to keep up. But they're, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, they're, you, but, but they really are not. I mean, you're not just cranking them out. I mean, they're really, whenever I read one of them, I think, oh, this is real. They're all interesting. You know, they, they, they all have some real, uh, you know, original ideas in them and and they're on such a wide diversity of topics that 
I just, I'm, I'm trying to think of how to formulate the question of how you approach research. It, it just seems to me that, I mean, there are some themes that come back. I mean, obviously you've been working on yeah. some of the same things for many, yeah. many years, a couple of ocean atmosphere processes, and, you know, you're still writing papers that have, uh, and so, and wind evaporation, SSD feedback mm. in them, but mm. so many other topics, including things in weather on shorter time scales, including, you know, high latitude as well as tropics and all kinds of different processes. And it seems to me that you have like some kind of, must really be having fun. I mean, you get see some different problem and just go and do that problem and you don't have any fear of it. You're not worried about, you know, uh, uh, if you don't, <laughs> weren't the, it wasn't something you did before. And you manage, you have such a wide, you know, so many co-authors, students and postdocs and co colleagues everywhere. And, and at the same time, you know, many scientists who are very, very high achieving, you know, sometimes because people, are driven to prove themselves or they have some insecurity or, or a big ego, but you don't have any of that. I mean, we don't know each other that well, but we've met yeah. over the years and you always seem calm and relaxed and you don't seem <laughs> like you're, like you're being driven by some, so I, I'm just kind of wondering how you, you know, how you manage to do it like this. You just seem to, you know, so, so productive and yet so calm and so um, involved in so many different things. It just looks like you're just, you know, just having fun, you know, and, and very few people manage to just have fun and, and be so successful at the same time. So just, I'm just, I want to hear how you think about the whole process and how you uh, do it. I mean, it's a, it just looks like something we, we could all, should all want to, to work like this if we could. So what's the, what's the. Yeah. So I, I think uh, I have a quite broad interest within the narrow field of ocean atmospheric science. Of course, yeah. you know, Adam, uh, you have a very broad, much broader uh, interest and, and talent as mm. you, you are the host of the podcast. Yeah, but that's, well, okay, but that's, yeah, that's just fun. But, you yeah. know, it's just, just perspective, <laughs> right? So in, in that sense, I'm a, compared to that, I'm a very narrow because I'm a single-minded uh, in uh, ocean atmosphere dynamics, basically. Yeah. Okay. So I, I think... Uh, Within that narrow uh, field, uh, I, I may have uh, jumped around a little bit. So I think the reason I, I was able to do that uh, is because uh, the International Pacific Research Center. Uh -huh. It's because uh, there are young people coming in and I, I, I try to kind of uh, uh, collaborate with them to identify a, a problem they have unique strengths to right. tackle in the in the most uh, kind of a innovative uh, original way, right? So the Sampes uh, idea about the Meiyu Bayou rain band is one of a uh, example. So I always uh, try to talk to them and see you know see what their interests might be and their strengths, and and, and then in the discussion you know we we will see why don't do this first. And of course, it doesn't always <laughs> work out because the things that didn't work out uh, didn't didn't get to see the light. <laughs> right. Oh, but you're saying it grows out of a mentoring style where you, you know, some people would take that postdoc and say, okay, well, I have this problem I've been thinking about. Could you please do this? And you didn't do that. You wait and see what are they thinking about and you try to sort of help them develop it. But you're you're giving some amount of control over the problem to them and you're also not worried about the fact that this is not a problem you had really known before and you 
you know, you're, you're willing to sort of go with them and trust that it's going to work. And some course, sometimes, as you say, maybe it doesn't, doesn't, but a lot of times, obviously. Yeah. But, but I think, uh, you know, the people who come to work with me, they, they generally highly talented, right? So it, it's a matter sure. of uh, collaborating, uh, identifying a, a set of problems uh, that they can make uh, most of uh, out of their uh, kind of experience and skills. So uh, there are a lot of things, uh, you know, I, I don't know a lot about. Yeah. But I guess uh, when you get older, uh, you, you, you have uh, some general sense about uh, things. So I, I, I feel they, they know uh, the details and, and yeah. uh, you know, the things better than I do. So my job is rather to kind of uh, put their work into some perspective and, yeah, and yeah. helping them to, to see which work, which directions uh, may be most beneficial for them. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think the two lessons here that I, that I kind of take away is one is that, I mean, defining the problem is such an important part of being a scientist. Exactly. And I think it's a hard thing to teach. And so you're you know, as a senior scientist, you're willing to let the junior people working with you exercise that muscle, kind of trust them, and 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 let them do it instead of you know it, instead of doing it for them and having them only do that later in their career you know that's one but the other thing that that's important is that the institution let you do it i mean if you had had to write <laughs> if you had had to write you know 20 proposals a year to sustain the kind of group that you had you probably couldn't have taken as many risks is, oh, is what yeah, you're saying yeah so yeah i don't spend much time writing proposals i, I don't enjoy even it. now yeah even now yeah, but but you're of course now you, I assume I mean you're in a regular U.S. university you don't have this kind of um, structure yeah, that so, IPRC hit, had. Yeah, so that so that I'm, now I'm facing kind of a, the regular uh, uh, U.S. Uh, scientists facing right. So how to <laughs> raise a certain amount of funding to support the students, yeah. if not postdocs, right? Yeah, so there there I guess the funding uh, is a, a limiting factor. Uh, here, uh, just because the funding is uh, limited. <laughs> yeah, you know, even at the University of Hawaii, I, I, I didn't need to have some funding, you know, in, in just to fund my, myself sure. and students, right? Yeah. And especially the, the institutional funding kind of a decreased over time. So I had yeah. to kind of a, a find a, a new funding for that. And uh, at the Scripps, it's, uh, it's the same thing. But uh, I, I guess uh, even now I, I felt like there are scientists, junior scientists and students, they sometimes write to me, right? So I'm doing this and can we talk a little bit, right? And then right. in the process, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, the, the conversation would, uh, would help uh, this person to kind of uh, do their research. And also, yeah. you know, the, the former students, postdocs, collaborators and now they they have their students right so they say oh right. why don't you talk to uh champagne a little bit about your research <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah you know some kind of informal collaboration so there's no funding involved right so they that's part of a <laughs> whole artwork here <laughs> yeah the, the other thing i want to ask about is you know we didn't talk at all yet about um human-induced climate change i mean global yeah. warming mm -hmm. Of course, some of your work is about that, and even though you know you you 
beginning part of your career was all about basically the natural processes exactly. and the climate, the natural variability in the seasonal cycle. But but you have done plenty of stuff on, on global warming too. And I'm curious how your awareness and perception of that has evolved over the years and and to what extent you know your recognition of it as a as a human problem does that enter your work in any way how how do you think about that yeah. or when did you start thinking about it or you know how did that topic enter into your into your yeah research yeah, in that, your life yeah adam thank you for for asking this question because uh, i i think that that might be a good uh, example of how uh, a scientific career might evolve right yeah so when i arrived uh, at the Princeton GFDL in uh, 1991. Yeah. In retrospect, that's the kind of a, the golden age of uh, climate change modeling at uh. the GFDL. Uh. Just because exactly during that period of time, Suki Manabe and colleagues began yeah. you to use uh, uh, then state of art, uh, fully full phys- physics uh, couple ocean atmosphere model. Right. to study the global warming in a transient experiments. So yeah. previously, they, they used like mixed layer ocean yeah. uh, and to study the steady state response of uh, temperature and other things. But right. then I guess in late 80s, uh, people began to realize, you know, if you increase CO2 1% a year, that the climate response with a dynamic ocean of uh, 4,000 meters deep and with mm. the thermal stratification and, and, and ocean circulation. Mm. Uh, it, 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 it takes a very long time, hundreds if not thousand years, for the four-kilometer ocean to reach, reach any state, steady state. So that transient simulation uh, was done at the GFDL with the full physics model in the late 80s. Okay, wait. So I I, I don't want to I don't want to stop you from this line of the story, but let's just take a moment because this is an important point. So actually, where you were working in Princeton GFDL, Suki Manabe, who you just mentioned, had been one of the first people to do any kind of global climate modeling starting exactly. already in the 60s. I mean, so this yeah. was like the birthplace, one of the birthplaces of, exactly. of that. Using but, atmospheric general circulation and, model. Right, using yeah. atmospheric model. And and putting the atmosphere and ocean together was like not really technically doable yet at that time. And so it was only kind of 30 years later, the same people in the same place yeah. with bigger computers and, and advances yeah. in the, how they built the models. They were able to put the ocean and atmosphere together in one model and understood yeah. that because the ocean takes up a lot of the heat that comes from global warming. It exactly. slows down the, re- yeah. the response. So you don't get to the new equilibrium. Yeah. You know, you increase CO2, you're eventually going to yeah. get however much warmer you're going to get, but it takes a long time to get there. So they were now only now able to do that problem of seeing exactly. the actual evolution in time to the new warmer yeah. state, which was of course also happening in real life at the same time. But that's yeah, it. exactly. So that's kind of a truly exciting period yeah. for uh global modeling of uh, transient uh, global warming. Yeah, yeah. So uh, at that time, I think uh, Suki uh, is shifting from a polar amplification to uh. Arctic amplification. Uh. Just because the Southern Ocean, because the ocean upwelling. Southern uh. Ocean uh, is not war- warming that much right. if you increase CO2 1% a year. Uh. 
So only by the Arctic Ocean, Arctic region, uh, because the, the, the positive feedback from sea ice and sea ice and other things. Uh, yeah. Yeah, people still still debate <laughs> what yeah. causes the Arctic amplification. But Suki, you know, he initially, uh, you know, maybe 20 years ago, before that, he was uh, saying the, pol- the polar region need to amplify, the warming would be amplified mm. in the steady state solutions. But in the, in the transit 1% CO2 uh, simulation, he recognized the polar amplification applies only in the Northern Hemisphere. Mm. So that, that, that's uh, the terminology uh, changed from uh, polar to Arctic amplification. Mm. And then he, he also discovered like the, the Atlantic Meridian overturning circulation would slow down in response to increased warming. Mm. Because the intensified hydrological cycle would uh, dump more precipitation in the northern North Atlantic mm. and, and stabilizing the Atlantic Meridian overturning circulation. Right. So Suki and his colleagues yeah. uh, were, were just writing or maybe just published uh, uh, their first papers on those uh, concepts. <laughs> yeah. So... I was working with uh, George Flander on yeah. IT, ITZZ problem as annual cycle on the Galapagos uh, mm. and so on. Right? So natural variability. So I, I was in audience and I, of course, I felt, uh, you know, Suki's work, you know, he gives uh, several seminars, uh, internal seminars at the GFDL. So I, I felt that those results are very kind of exciting. But on the other hand, I didn't feel uh, it's real. <laughs> I know I what you mean. A, I know what you mean. Actually. Yeah, because uh, not much has been talked about outside uh, a small research community yeah. of climate change, right? Yeah. So I, yeah. I felt uh, global warming is uh, far into the distant future. Yeah. It has nothing well, I, to do with my research. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. I think I think most of us. I mean, for me, I, as I say, I came into the field slightly later, but I think most of us felt that way at that time. Maybe not. Maybe Manabi didn't. I don't know. Maybe Jim Hansen. Maybe not everybody did, but maybe yeah. a lot of us did. Yeah. So I remember, like uh, at the at the launch, you know, GFDL is in the off-campus site, so there's yeah. only one cafeteria opens only during <laughs> lunch. <laughs> yeah. And Manabi, uh, uh, Kirk Bryan, and a few others. Uh, they are regular, uh, regular customers yeah. of that cafeteria. And I, I also was one of the regular customers. So, so Suki was, and Kirk, they, they were just talking, very exciting about the, the research and so on. And sometimes uh, Kirk and uh, Suki would debate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so that that was uh, kind of my early education period for uh, global warming research, kind of all yeah. informally, right? Uh, yeah. But then I, I guess uh, things started to change in the uh, late two thousands, right? Yeah. I guess uh, the the important trigger is uh, the couple model intercomparison project phase three. Yeah. So that's uh, an international project that uh, have major modeling centers 
uh, follow uh, a certain protocol of uh, experimentations and deposit the data in uniform format on some servers. So in other words, yeah. I think that's kind of revolutionary, right? In a sense, yeah. it flattened uh, the field of model analytics. But previously, yeah. uh, if you want to analyze a couple model simulations, you must have friends in modeling centers. In the right. US, would be either NCAR or, or GFDL. <laughs> or GIS, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or, or GIS, yes. And then the SIMIP6, just uh, you know, anybody with uh, a, a computer can analyze. Yeah. And also just, uh, I think around uh, 2005, six, I think, you know, uh, Isaac Held and uh, Brian Soden's paper, uh, 2006, right? So yeah. robust changes uh, from common uh, uh, models. And also one of my friends, uh, Gabe Vecchi, uh, published uh, a very important paper on slow down for worker circulation right. in observations and, and, right. and models. And also just the, the global mean surface temperature has kept rising. So people, right. you know, at least the ocean atmospheric scientists, we began to think, oh, maybe uh, climate change is not that far distant in the future. Right. <laughs> and, and of course, the international negotiations kept failing. Exactly. To, to do anything about it. Yeah. So all those uh, things uh, kind of uh, made us to, you know, kind of, a, in other words, uh, uh, kind of a dynamists uh, who, who never really uh, thought seriously about the climate right. change. Right. Uh, I know exactly what you mean. I had the same experience. <laughs> I was like, wait a second. <laughs> this, is, this is happening right now, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think uh, that's the beginning of my interest in, in climate change. And of course, uh, just uh, in 2008, I was eligible for sabbatical leave. Mm. So I, I, I talked to Gabe, right? And Gabe said, oh, you should come to uh, GFDL. Uh, and I, I talked to Clara Desert at the National Center of Atmospheric Research. Mm. And Clara said, oh, you're, you're very well welcome to <laughs> come to NCAR. Of course, I, had an, an, I knew very little about uh, climate change dynamics other than uh, what I heard from Suki Manabi, uh, Kirk Bryan, or, yeah. or Gabe Vecchi. <laughs> right. But I think uh, what, what's important is uh, at NCAR, at, at GFDL, I, I, I was able to work with uh, leading scientists on their uh, current uh, state-of-art model simulations. So I, we decided to focus on 100-year difference in the, in the, basically in the 1% CO2 scenario. Right, so in 100 years, how much things are going to change? So how the ocean atmosphere coupling uh, is playing a role in terms of uh, shaping up uh, the ocean warming pattern and uh, atmosphere circulation and tropical rainfall distributions. So that that was the the, the central scientific question. So uh, we we try to ask with the uh, Clara Desert and Gabe Vecchi. So uh, mm. that, you know, because, you know, this collaboration with those leading scientists. So I, I was able to kind of say something. <laughs> Wait, so from, which, where were you actually sitting? In, in NCAR or GFDL? I can't remember. Uh, so or, or both. My sabbatical lasted for six months. 
So I, I spent uh, two months each at Ankar and the GFDI. Oh, I see, I see. And before that, I maybe had a tour of uh, two or three weeks in Japan uh, to, you know, to see all my scientific friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 So that, that's how, you know, uh, my sabbatical ended up with. So I, I thought that was a very important thing for, in my scientific career because that allowed me to kind of uh, apply my experience in ocean atmosphere coupling uh, mm. on something people are, are very interested in. In other words, uh, the climate change, anthropogenic climate change. So yeah. yeah. That, that turned out to be a very good uh, uh, research visit, you know, visits to both NCAR and uh, GFDL. I mean, in a way, it's like, you know, you talked about how moving from um, Japan to Princeton, you know, as a postdoc, you went from oh, theory. Thinking, th- thinking as a, as a theorist, you know, uh-huh. to being motivated by relevance to the observations. And in a way this is like a, a step to another level of relevance, right? In other words, yeah. it's not just that you're talking about something that's in the observations, but also that it's a, it's a, it matters. I mean, it's a human, uh, yeah. human yeah. problem. Yeah. I'm, uh, I, I, I think, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons I felt that's an important turning point in my career, just because uh, if I stayed only within the, the natural climate system, hmm. then I, I, I think, uh, yeah, I guess just uh, uh, taking up uh, new problems, in this case, uh, quite, quite different. <laughs> one is the radiative force, the one is the internal uh, feedback, uh, allows uh, me to see uh, ocean atmospheric coupling in completely different light. I think it, that sabbatical visit, this, you know, my visit to NCAR GFDL, not only changed my view of uh, ocean atmosphere coupling, and also through my mentoring and collaborations, affect many other people hmm. in, in their direction of research. Hmm. Just because, uh, you know, I think many people, they were thinking about uh, an entry into climate change problems. Mm. I think that maybe uh, what Gabe and I did, uh, mm. and also Carla, right? So mm. kind of offered uh, some examples how people who study studying a natural system could uh, mm. make uh, useful contributions to, uh, you know, pressing problem of our time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how do you feel about, you know, so in your current research, how do you think about usefulness? I mean, I, I've had a bit of a, you know, I, I've, I went through something like what you did where I got interested in climate change. I felt it was an important problem. I should work on it. And then after maybe sort of 10 years of doing that, I started to partly coinciding with the kind of political uh, yeah. De- yeah. decline in the uh-huh. U S I started to think that maybe our science is actually not helping that much because, I mean, of course it's good to understand the system, but we understand it well enough to know the basic direction it's going. And, and at the same time, we're not, nothing is happening to change it. So, you know, I, I, I've had some kind of crisis of, of, 
about that. And I wonder if you feel any of that or if you just continue to be excited about the science and feel the science is important and that's enough. Yeah, so I, I heard uh, uh, you, you quizzed uh, uh, Mark and uh, Kerry about yeah, this Yeah, I asked everybody about this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that made me think, right? So uh, I guess uh, in my, my own feeling is uh, I didn't feel uh, that strongly about uh, the diminishing importance of uh, climate science. Yeah. Just because I think, I understand why you think that way and other people think that way. Yeah, I mean, it's almost an emotional reaction I have. Yeah, it's, it's I, I'm, I'm not really making the, well, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Please so, continue. So I think, uh, you know, on, on some level, because uh, the climate change science, I think uh, has been more widely accepted yeah. these days than see, just a few years ago, especially during yeah. the last year, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think that that is uh, a tribute to climate scientists like uh, Jim Hansen, uh, Suki Manabi, and yeah. many others. Yeah. yeah. So I think... Uh, in that sense, I guess uh, uh, I would say the global mean surface temperature research hmm. has achieved uh, its, uh, its uh, grand uh, prize, I would say, right? So, in other words, yeah. uh, uh, having uh, people to recognize, appreciate the threat of climate change. And then, right. I guess, uh, two weeks ago, uh, Bill Gates uh, released a, a book, right? right. He, he said he, he has solutions to right. get the emissions to zero. Right. So I, I thought that that was a kind of a symbolic in marking. You know, we have, we have the, the brightest minds, right? <laughs> right, right. Uh, taking up the challenge of right. climate change. And the solution, of course, they, they are more interested in solution. And, and your, I guess one thing is uh, the frustration, a sense from uh, your question is... Uh, maybe we are not the major player anymore. <laughs> right. More, yeah. That's okay. I mean, I don't mind not being the major player. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't disagree with anything you said. I mean, I hear sort of two different things in what you're saying. One is, you know, look, the science was successful on its own terms. I mean, yeah, we, we exactly. understand the problem well yeah. enough. That's good. So we should feel good about that. And, you know, we've convinced a large, you know, most of the world. And, um, you know, so the rest of the job is, you know, is something else. And that's absolutely true. I mean, my, I think the, yeah, the failure is political and not scientific. And, you know, that's just caused me to think, okay, you know, yeah, it's not a criticism of the science. It's, it's a, it's just a feeling of, you know, as you get to a certain point in your life, you think, well, gee, is this, you know, is this all I can do or should I be doing something else, you know, from the position I'm in? But the other thing you're saying is, you know, about Gates, the other thing I sort of hear in what you're saying is just is just a bit more optimism. I mean, you're saying, look, that maybe maybe things are changing and we're just kind of not quite there yet, but it's, you know. Yeah, maybe- so I, I think, uh, you know, the Gates book is going to make uh, quite a huge difference in, in you a think sense. So? Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I, I just think that that might be very encouraging to many people. Although he might have not have the final solutions, right? But right. having people uh, be optimistic and thinking hard, I think that is important. Yeah. Uh, and maybe, you know, 
in, in response to your question, right? And I think my my research, my interest research, is kind of a, in a sense, narrowly focused on ocean atmosphere dynamics, a couple I mean, of dynamics. Yeah, again, it has to be said yeah. much broader than most people, but okay. yeah. So that that that's I, I think that's one of the reasons I, I felt uh, still enthusiastic yeah. as, as a scientist, uh, maybe a naturalist, right? Yeah. To, uh, in a sense, unlock uh, secrets of na- nature, right? As the climate yeah. change unfolds. So I, I, I'm still kind of very excited because I entered the field from physical oceanography. You know, yeah. my, my parents, my brothers, my friends, they had no clue <laughs> why I was studying physical oceanography. Right. So I, I still think, you know, uh, you know how how the general circulation of the ocean atmosphere might change, and what what drive those changes, and by what mechanisms, and how those changes are going yeah. to shape regional climate change and extreme events. Right. All so right. those things are still, you know, I, I guess uh, for me, I, I remind me uh, what excited me from the beginning. You know, right. So I, I, I thought, you know, this climate change dimension, if anything, just expands uh, the possibilities of studying yeah. uh, those interactions. Right. Yeah. Well, so I, I think, I, you know, I was asking you how you managed to you know, work on so many different topics and be so productive and, and all that and, and, and do such good work on, on all these different topics. And I, I think the answer, I mean, you didn't say this, but I, you know, it's, you, you have a, just a very positive outlook is what you just said. I mean, you're, you're saying that you sort of still love the things that are lovable about the job. And, and you also expressing, although you didn't use these words, the, the words that I often find myself using near the end of these conversations with people is, you know, you were also expressing that it's a great privilege to be doing this and you still sort of feel that it sounds like, you know, you're still in touch with that that yeah. sense you know you haven't become jaded about it or 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 anything so that that's for, a, for a period of time also i i was asking myself you know what's beyond uh, i have done so far right yeah so because uh, at some point i felt uh, i i know a few things so i just couldn't see what's uh, ahead yeah but i i think uh, somehow i I feel I, I was able to overcome this feeling now yeah. because I, I saw in terms of understanding the uh, interaction of ocean atmosphere, both dynamically, some dynamically. There's still a lot of puzzles. You know, now I, I, I feel like uh, I know what I, I want to do <laughs> for the next few years. <laughs> That's yeah. great. I feel like I should, uh, you know, learn how to adopt your positive... Uh positive view. Okay. Well, thank you, Shangping, for taking so much time to talk with me. Yeah. Thank you, Adam. Uh, it's uh, it's for... great to hear your story and uh, we're, we're lucky to do what we do, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What a remarkable and just great scientist and person. I was truly inspired by that conversation with Shangping and I hope you got a little bit of that too. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. Our editing and audio post-production are by Duotone Audio Group, where our editors and post-producers are Stefan Wiener and Dana Hamm, and our audio engineer is Juan Avoitis. 
My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection. <laughs>